Just one quick spoiler warning. Um, the discussion that follows does contain major plot spoilers for several different Final Fantasy games, including Final Fantasy VII. Uh, the Final Fantasy VII Remake is coming out next week, so if you want to go into that game spoiler-free, if you've never played Final Fantasy VII before and you're excited to play it for the first time next week, um, you might want to just skip this episode because there are some plot spoilers for, for Final Fantasy VII and others. All right, let's get into it. Hello there, my name is Justin, and welcome to today's episode of The Pickup Line. On today's episode, I'd like to do a little bit of a pop culture roundup by focusing on the video game that I've been playing a lot recently, Final Fantasy XI. I've recently got back into this game um, because I've been spending so much time at home, and I've started my adventures over again on a private server, so playing it as though it were day one of the game 20 years ago. It's been an exciting thing, and so I thought we could uh, I would share some articles that I've found about Final Fantasy in general, and then one specifically about Final Fantasy XI on the show today. Thank Thank you so much for tuning into the pickup line. Let's get into it. The final showdown machine. I say let's get this show on the road. So to kick it off, I thought we would talk about Final Fantasy a little bit more generally. I found a really interesting article that I thought we could read through and discuss. It's by Scott Baird from October 2016, so it's about six years old now. Um, But it still should be a fun read-through and a fun discussion. It's from Screen Rant, and again, written by Scott Baird. I'll post the link to this article in the episode description, so look for it there. Uh, The article is called, 15 Things You Didn't Know About Final Fantasy. Um, I thought it would be fun to go through these 15 things and see which ones you knew about, which ones I knew about, being a big Final Fantasy guy, and it should be fun. So, from Scott Baird, number 15, the bizarre relationship between Aerith and Sephiroth. When the name Aerith, or as she was originally known, Aerith, is brought up, most people think of her untimely death during the events of Final Fantasy VII. After traveling to the Forgotten Capital, Aerith attempts to use the power of the White Materia in order to stop Sephiroth's plan of destroying the world. Just as Cloud and his friends arrive, a Genova clone of Sephiroth descends from on high and stabs Aerith with his sword. In earlier concepts for the game, the relationship between the two characters was changed many times. Originally, they were intended to be brother and sister. Evidence of this can be seen in the similar design of both characters' hair. 
In story terms, this would likely have meant that Professor Hojo would have been Aerith's father in the original version of the game instead of Professor Gast. The relationship between the two was then changed to the two of them being former lovers. It was intended that Sephiroth would have been Aerith's first true love. The act of killing her would have represented Sephiroth finally cutting the remaining ties to his humanity. Aerith's first love was changed to Zack Fair, a character who was added much later in development. So that's interesting. Uh, and it's true, their hair is very similar. They both have that sort of twin spike thing going on there. So very interesting. Did not know that. I did not know that to be the case. Number 14, an enemy had to be changed to stop a potential Dungeons & Dragons lawsuit. Uh, like a lot of early video game RPGs, Final Fantasy owes its existence to the presence of tabletop games like Dungeons & Dragons. In the original Final Fantasy, we can see many elements of tabletop RPGs, a party of four characters with classes that mirror the classic four D&D archetypes, the fighter, the thief, the cleric, and the mage, the presence of Bahamut and Tiamat in the game, who were also popular creatures in D&D. Final Fantasy also used a Vancean system of magic named after the fantasy author Jack Vance, where spellcasters had limited use of each spell before they needed to rest. One element of Final Fantasy was a little too close to Dungeons & Dragons, however, and needed to be changed. The Evil Eye monster originally resembled a creature known as the Beholder. Most monsters in D&D are public domain. There are two major exceptions to this, however. The Mind Flayer, a squid-headed wizard, and the Beholder, a floating monster with numerous eye stalks. Both the Beholder and the Mind Flayer are copyrighted designs, and the Evil Eye needed to be changed for the American release of Final Fantasy. Now, that's interesting. I wonder if... Um, I wonder if uh, Stranger Things had to pay royalties to D&D for their use of the Mind Flayer uh, in Stranger Things. I bet they did. So that's interesting. Number 13, Final Fantasy III has a manga adaptation filled with nudity, gore, and body horror. Until the release of Final Fantasy VII, the numbering of the series was different outside of Japan. This is because several of the games were not released in the West until much later. The original Final Fantasy was the same in both regions, but the Final Fantasy 2 and 3 on the NES did not leave Japan. When Final Fantasy 4 was released in America, it was renamed to Final Fantasy 2. When Final Fantasy 5 was not released in the West and 6 was, Final Fantasy 6 was changed to Final Fantasy 3. Squaresoft abandoned this confusing numbering scheme when Final Fantasy 7 received its worldwide release in 1997. Um, so Final Fantasy three, the one, the original three in Japan, um, it seems like had this crazy manga. Uh, Yukio no Kaze Densetsu Final Fantasy three Yori was a ninety one manga series that loosely followed the events of the game. Um, so that's interesting. Number 12, the original end boss of Final Fantasy IX was meant to be Hades. Final Fantasy IX is one of the most beloved games in the series. Despite this, even the most diehard fans of the game will struggle to defeat the end boss Necron. I don't think. I'm not sure if I ever got to that point in the game, to be honest. Um, throughout the game, Final Fantasy IX's main antagonist is Kuja. The initial villain is Queen Braun, but it is revealed that Kuja is manipulating her behind the scenes. Kuja has no problems using the Eidolons, the Eidolons summon monsters outside of battle, and will order them to attack cities if need be. When you reach the final battle of the game, you have to face Kuja for the last time. As the battle goes on, he slowly starts losing control. He will enter his limit break form and become the mighty Trance Kuja whose magical power is increased to deadly new levels. It seems like this is the final battle of the game, but nope. Some other monster named Necron shows up to be the final boss instead. He's never mentioned before the battle or in the ending. His presence in the game is a total mystery. This was not always meant to be the case, however, as concept art shows that the original end boss was meant to be Hades, the lord of the underworld. The final boss arena actually maintains some of his unique design. Hades does not appear in the game. He is an optional super boss. The reason for this change was never explained. Number 11, the final boss of Final Fantasy V was almost a centaur. 
When choosing what the villain of your Final Fantasy game is going to be, you have a lot of options. There are things like dragons, demons, and wizards, just to name a few. The creators of Final Fantasy V decided that their end boss should be a tree. An evil tree. X-Death was created from the combined souls of slain monsters. When the evil warlock Inuo was defeated, his soul was sealed inside a great tree alongside the souls of his servants. Over time, the souls combined into a new creature named X-Death, who managed to break free from the tree and enact a plan to destroy all of reality. When you fight X-Death at the end of the game, his first form is a giant, evil, floating tree in space. This was not always meant to be X-Death's design. According to the concept art of the game, X-Death was originally meant to be a centaur monster. The reason for this change has never been revealed, but one possible explanation may have been due to the difficulty in creating a long-bodied overworld sprite on SNES hardware. Number 10. Idea was almost in Final Fantasy VII. The developer of the Final Fantasy series is a company called Square Enix, formerly two companies, Square and Enix. They are one of the biggest game developers in the world and have numerous projects being worked on at the same time. This dates back to the 1990s when Final Fantasy VII was being developed at the same time as the SNES game in the series. Games in the series. Due to the odd chronology of game development, ideas from later games can make cameos in earlier installments. The fiend boss from Final Fantasy VI was originally named Sephiroth, but in its concept art, the Eden Guardian Force from Final Fantasy VIII is named Bartandalus in the game's files, which is also the name of the antagonist of Final Fantasy XIII. And a monster from Final Fantasy V bears more than a passing resemblance to Aerith. This was almost the case with Idea Kramer, the initial antagonist of Final Fantasy VIII. She was designed by Tetsuya Nomura and was intended to be a character known as the Witch. The Witch was going to be one of the villains of Final Fantasy VII. Nomura liked the design so much that he put it aside so it could be used more prominently in the next game in the series. Interesting. Um, I, I, that's kind of a cool idea, that kind of overlap of ideas, how they present themselves in the different iterations of the games um, and, and what we see in the development cycles and how they work out with the different installments is a really cool idea. Final uh, n- Number nine, Final Fantasy Tactics was almost an entirely different game. Final Fantasy Tactics is often considered the greatest of the Final Fantasy spin-offs. Despite being overshadowed during its initial release due to its coming out after the genre-defining Final Fantasy VII, the game has gone on to achieve cult status as one of the most beloved games on the original PlayStation. The world of Final Fantasy Tactics is like a high fantasy version of Game of Thrones. You play as Ramza Beovul, the youngest son of a prominent noble family. Ramza is dragged into fighting an unjust war, one that is being manipulated behind the scenes by greed-filled kings and powerful demons. Ramza must choose between loyalty to his family and their cause and doing the right thing. Final Fantasy Tactics was almost a very different game. There existed a Japan-exclusive RPG on the Super Nintendo called Bahamut Lagoon, where you controlled a team of characters that fought alongside powerful dragons. Bahamut Lagoon was set on a series of floating islands with only an abyss beyond them. During development of Bahamut Lagoon, the game was originally called Final Fantasy Tactics. Number 8. The Two Different Versions of Zeromus When Final Fantasy IV was released in America, it had its name changed to Final Fantasy II. That wasn't the only thing that was changed, however, as the game would have its content cut to shreds. The perception at the time was that American gamers just didn't get Japanese RPGs. Squaresoft decided that they should make Final Fantasy IV a lot easier for its Western release. A lot of the main characters' special abilities were removed, many enemies and boss battles were toned down, and the game had all of its religious content censored. This version of the game would actually be released in Japan. It was called Final Fantasy IV Easy Type, and it contained all of the cuts from the American version that made the game easier. 
The game also contained one other major change that fans would not discover until the end of the game. The end boss of Final Fantasy IV is Zeramus, whose appearance is uh, hard to describe. In the easy type version, Zeramus was changed into a skeleton and centaur hybrid with a semi-naked woman glued to its groin area. This alternate version of Zeramus would reappear in the Game Boy Advance remake of Final Fantasy IV. He became an optional superboss named Zeramus E.G. Number seven, the creator killed everyone in Final Fantasy one through three and five and six. In Japan, the second most popular game in the Final Fantasy series after seven is Final Fantasy IV. This is the main reason that the game has been ported so many times and is one of the few titles in the series to ever get a direct sequel, Final Fantasy IV The After Years. The villain of Final Fantasy IV The After Years is a godlike being known as the creator. He uses a moon as a spaceship and comes to the world of Final Fantasy IV in order to judge whether the races on the planet were successful on an evolutionary level. Much like the villain from Prometheus, he finds humanity lacking and enacts a plan to wipe out all life on the planet. The creator reveals that he is the last of a species that traveled the galaxy. They would plant magical crystals on worlds in order to speed up the evolution of the native species. If they found a world lacking, they would retake the crystals and destroy the planet. When you break into the creator's moon slash spaceship, you find crystals from numerous worlds that are guarded by the boss monsters from Final Fantasy 1 through 6. This implies that those worlds were created by the creator's race and that he went back and destroyed them at some point in time. That's really cool. What an interesting way to tie all the Final Fantasy series together. Like, Final Fantasy XIV attempts to do something similar to this as well with the idea of the shards of Hydaelyn and, like, all these different versions of the same world being kind of shards of the, of the main mother crystal. It's an interesting concept, which I never really knew about. It seems to be present in the history of Final Fantasy throughout. Number six, the two supernovas. The Final Fantasy games released on their original PlayStation have become notorious for their lengthy summon spells. These were mainly to show off the new 3D hardware that the games were using. You would summon a monster and then wait a few minutes while they did a fancy looking attack. When the games were released, these sequences were breathtaking and fans didn't complain about having to wait. As time went on, however, the novelty wore off and the fans just wanted the attack to end already. Summon monsters have waned in popularity for this reason. This trend was started in Final Fantasy VII where the Knights of the Round summon ran for almost a minute and a half. The longest attack in the game is not actually a summon used by the characters, but one used by the enemy. When you fight uh, Safer Sephiroth, the penultimate boss of the game, he has the ability to use his own unique summon called Supernova. Depending on which version of the game you had, the attack would be different. In the original Japanese version of the game, Supernova was a spell that dealt direct damage. The animation showed an image of outer space that fills with blue light that strikes the party. The later version of Supernova that appeared in the English localizations of the game had an animation that was over two minutes long. You saw a meteor destroying the entire solar system and then hitting the party for gravity damage. That's interesting. I always love the Final Fantasy summons, despite their length. Um, but you're right, I think, you know, in more modern games, clearly the ability to skip the cutscenes and stuff would be, is, is, is welcome. But watching those was always a highlight of playing those games, for sure. Number five. The lost English version of Final Fantasy II has leaked online. The original Final Fantasy was a popular game when it was released in America. The only problem was it was released in 1990, three years after the original Japanese version. By the time the English Final Fantasy came out, Japan was up to Final Fantasy III. Due to the popularity of the original game, development began on an English localization of Final Fantasy II. It was even advertised in publications like Nintendo Power. There was one major thing standing in the way of the game's release, and that was the upcoming launch of the Super Nintendo. As was the case with the original Mother and Earthbound game, Nintendo wanted to make a fresh start on a new console, and Final Fantasy II was scrapped. In recent years, an English prototype of Final Fantasy II has leaked online. 
It was originally named Final Fantasy II Dark Shadow over Palakia and features a near-complete English translation. The main problem with the prototype is that the translation is in a very unrefined state and is borderline English levels of unreadable. Interesting. Number four, the lost Final Fantasy VII spin-off. Final Fantasy VII is the most popular title in the series. While it is technically not the most profitable of the games due to the constant revenue brought in by the MMO Final Fantasy XI, hey, woot woot, it is by far the most recognizable. The announcement of the Final Fantasy VII remake at E3 2015 got the biggest crowd reaction of the show. The appearance of Cloud and Super Smash Bros. bolstered sales of the Nintendo 3DS Wii U every uh, Wii U. Every time Square Enix license out their characters for a crossover, it is usually the ones from Final Fantasy VII. It is due to this popularity that Final Fantasy VII has received so many spin-offs. Dirge of Cerberus, Final Fantasy VII was a third-person action game starring Vincent Valentine. Crisis Core, Final Fantasy VII follows the adventures of Zack Fair and shows what the Shinra Corporation was like before Sephiroth's defection. There also exists a few Final Fantasy VII cell phone titles based on the snowboarding and biking minigames. There exists another Final Fantasy VII spin-off that never left Japan. Before Crisis, Final Fantasy VII was an episodic RPG released on cell phones in 2004. The game follows a group of Turks, the private investigators that work for the Shinra Corporation, as they do the dirty work for their parent company. Before Crisis, Before Crisis shows the origins of the terrorist group Avalanche, and even answers one of the lingering questions of Final Fantasy VII's ending. In Before Crisis, we see that a female of Red XIII's species is still alive, and in hiding, explaining how he has kids in Final Fantasy VII's ending. Despite speculation that Before Crisis would be remade for the Nintendo 3DS, the game has yet to leave Japan. Number three, Vaughn was made androgynous to appease Japanese fans. Despite being the first Final Fantasy to ever receive a perfect score in Famitsu Magazine, Final Fantasy XII—excuse me, uh, yeah, Final Fantasy XII—is one of the most polarizing games in the series. While most fans praised the game's graphics and voice acting, especially compared to Final Fantasy X, a lot of people had issues with the gameplay. Final Fantasy XII was more like an MMO than the previous games, and relied on a series of AI commands known as gambits that essentially played the game for you. The biggest complaint about the game concerned the main character, Vaughn. This is, really, this is really the biggest complaint? I'm not sure if I like this part of the article, but... He was a young, whiny brat with Justin Bieber hair and had almost no connection to the story. Unlike the rest of the cast, Vaughn just kind of goes with the flow and is more of a spectator to the stories of the other party members. This brings us to the second problem with Vaughn. Most of the other party members would have made a better main character. You had Bosch von Rosenberg a disgraced former general who is accused of killing his king and needs to prove his innocence. You had Balthier, a Han Solo-like rogue who travels the world stealing treasure. You also had Princess Ash, a, de a deposed royal who seeks to reclaim her kingdom even if it means using ancient and dangerous weapons. It was revealed in an interview with Akatoshi Kawaza that Vaughn's design was intentional. Vaughn was originally going to be older, more rugged, and world-weary. Due to the Japanese audience preferring younger and more androgynous characters, he was changed to appease them. All right, we're almost at the top of the list here, almost done with this list. Um, here we are at number two. The Final Fantasy X and X-2 sequel that ruined everything. The purpose of the main characters in Final Fantasy X is to find a way to destroy a monster called Sin. Sin is a colossal whale creature who reappears several years after his destruction. Young people from all over the world undergo a pilgrimage in order to learn the final Aeon, the only thing capable of killing Sin. In Final Fantasy X-2, Yuna is searching for her lost love, Titus, who faded away after Sin was destroyed for the last time. 
she discovers a recording of a person who looks just like him and begins an adventure that spans the world as she tries to find the lover that she thought had died. In both games, you win. Sin is destroyed at the end of Final Fantasy X, and you get 100% completion in Final Fantasy X-2. Then Titus and Yuna are reunited. That is, unless you listen to the terrible sequel audio drama Final Fantasy X Will. In Will, it is revealed that Titus and Yuna broke up and that Sin has been returned to life. So yeah, I hope you enjoyed the hundreds of hours you poured into Final Fantasy X and X-2 because those happy endings were unmade by a fanfiction-grade radio drama. Final Fantasy X Will was officially translated and released as an extra in the HD remaster of the games. Wow, uh, I never knew that. That's crazy and ridiculous. <laughs> what a, uh, that's a nightmare. Um, horrible choice. Oh well. All right, here we are. The number one uh, thing you, you might not know about Final Fantasy. Uh, Final Fantasy VII was almost a New York detective drama. Whoa, okay, here we go. Final Fantasy VII went through many changes during its development, both in its setting and its characters. Along with other things mentioned on this list, we also have some major changes for the character of Genova. In the final version of the game, Genova is an alien life form that crashed onto the planet. The scientists at the Shinra Corporation experimented with her DNA and used it to create super soldiers, one of whom was Sephiroth. In the original concept, Genova was actually something contained in the genetics of all humans and would grant powers to certain individuals who could awaken Genova within them. Genova was later changed to, be, to uh, be a creature that would rip off her own body parts and each one would turn into a monster that the players must fight. Gross. The final battle with Genova would have been against her disembodied heart. The original idea for Final Fantasy VII was that it would be a detective drama set in New York City. This was later changed to the fictional city of Midgar, where the main character would be Detective Joe, a private eye who is hunting the people responsible for blowing up the city. Some of these elements would make their way into the, a later Squaresoft game, Parasite Eve. In Parasite Eve, you play as a New York City police officer who is on the trail of a, woman, of a woman named Eve. After murdering the audience at an opera, it was revealed that Eve could manipulate the mitochondria in the blood of animals and turn them into monsters. There are definitely parallels between Genova and Eve, and Parasite Eve might be the closest we will ever get to seeing the original version of Final Fantasy VII. Well, that's interesting. Who knew? Well, thanks for listening to me read that article. Again, that was, uh, that was not my writing. That was from uh, Scott Baird, Screen Rant uh, from 2016. But I thought that was an interesting thing to think about and talk about. How many of those things did you know? Uh, did you know any of them? Uh, which one surprised you? Feel free to call in, leave a message, and we'll, we can, uh, I'll add that to the discussion at the end of this episode. And now I want to I move on and, and focus in a little bit more uh, to one specific Final Fantasy game, the one that I love so much, um, Final Fantasy XI. All right, so now that we've gone through 15 things you might not have known generally about Final Fantasy games, I'd like to focus in on one specific Final Fantasy game and cover some things you might not know about Final Fantasy XI, the MMORPG Final Fantasy game that's been around since 2001 and that I've been playing for almost the last 20 years of my life. Um, this, uh, this piece is a, another article from The Gamer, this one from 2017 uh, by Sam uh, Dansel. Uh, Dansel? Sam Dengsel. I'll post a link to this as well. Just, just as a disclaimer, these are not my words. Uh, these were written by Sam over at uh, the at um, the Gamer. Uh, number fifteen. 
Bear men can't make babies. The Galker are one of the five races the player can choose from, but with them only male characters can be created. Due to the main mis- due to the mistranslation in the manual, many English-speaking fans believe the Galka were asexual, but the developers have stated otherwise. Yet there are no female Galka seen in the entire world of Vondiel. This is possibly because 600 years prior to the beginning of the game, most of the Galka were wiped out. Simply put, the Galka are no longer capable of reproduction if they ever were. Currently, when an elderly Galka realizes it's his time, he goes into seclusion in the wilderness to die. His body is enveloped by light, and later on he will emerge as a child and find his way back to civilization. The boy won't remember his previous life unless he is the tailkeeper, who can remember all dead Galka memories from the past 200 years. So, it isn't clear, but many Galka may be slowly dying out. Fascinating. I never knew that. Crazy, though. Number 14, Callous Catgirl Culture. On the other side of the fence, players can only pick to be a female Mithra. Due to the paltry number of male Mithra left, they are seen as a commodity and kept frail and sheltered to sire and raise children. Meanwhile, the females are the leaders and warriors who venture out into the world. The only known exception to this is Leko Habaka, a Windhurst black mage and tactical advisor who is fought over by many of his officers to the point where he has to hide. Fan theory suggests that the Rogadin and Mikote of Final Fantasy XIV, um, available to play as both sexes, are ancestors to the Galka and Mithra, respectively, before genocides cut their numbers. Like the Galka, the hot-headed Mithra are a race similar to beastmen and thus have lower charisma. Mithra form tribes under chieftainesses, and legal disputes are still settled through armed combat like knife fights, leaving the winner of the duel considered factually correct. That's crazy. I never knew that. Been playing the game for 20 years, never knew any of that. That's wild. Number 13, the Obsidian Bolt, a racist turned hero. In a minor quest called A Timely Visit, the player can learn about the legendary hero Vijartal Kafio. Centuries ago, a prince takes over Sandoria from his brother, the king, demanding a peace treaty be ratified with Bastok. The king sends Vijartal to accept the terms, but secretly orders him to assassinate the prince as most Elvon hate the humans of Bastok. On his way, Vijartal is thrust into the present era. This is before time travel was overdone in the Final Fantasy XI storylines. The player witnesses Vijartal learning about the future. Though initially skeptical, Vijartal is ecstatic to hear that he became a hero and begins thinking of nicknames like the Obsidian Bolt. However, he learns that he died protecting the prince he was sent to kill. In the end, Vijartal learns to give up his hatred and goes back to his own time to fulfill his destiny. Only the player knows Vijartal's death is faked, as a man calling himself the Obsidian Bolt lives the rest of his life in hiding, in Bastok. Number 12. Tartar are bloodthirsty. Historically, Tartar are actually quite vicious, and early on monopolized the use of magic. After emigrating and founding the Federation of Windhurst, negotiations failed with the nearby Agudo natives, so the Tartaro invade the Agudo city of Ostraja, forcing a surrender. Years later, the Agudo construct Castle Ostraja, and again, the Tartaro seize the Agudo home. Yagudo wars escalate and flare up for a total of seven wars intermittently over centuries. During this time, the Tarotaro also slaughtered most of the peaceful Pirogo race, the frog people, immediately deemed as threats for learning language and magic with Windhurst borders, and, not limited to only overpowering the beastmen of their non-native continent, Tarotaro create Elvon subjugation forces to cut down all the Elvon clans. Though Tarotaro eventually cooled down, I'd think twice about defending uh, Tarotaro from all racism against them in Vanadiel. Uh, wow, Taro's sound like they're pretty, uh, pretty insane. Um, they, they just like kill everybody. Um, number 11, Shantoto is famous outside of Final Fantasy XI. That's true. Shantoto is a character that's appeared in several other Final Fantasy and Square Enix games. Uh, number 10, Iroa fails at time travel. 
Speaking of Eorzea, there's another character we saw cross over, the main heroine of the, final of the final campaign scenario. The creators had trouble finding a female name that they hadn't already used, but eventually settled on Aroa. Upon meeting for the first time, she immediately calls the player Master. Aroa is actually the player's pupil, and Tenzin's daughter, from a future where the cloud of darkness has consumed Bonadil. There's a convoluted plot where Iroa is hunted by, by death for being in a time before her birth, but she is regularly saved by Phoenix as she bungles around time. Meanwhile, the player fulfills both a divine and dark destiny. After all this, Iroa leaves to return to the future one last time, but she gets stuck in Eorzea instead. She believes she is in a dream, but finds that, unlike Shantoto, she has, she has no way of leaving and thus resolves to continue her training. So, um, the whole Iroa story I always thought was really cool, and the whole Wings of the, uh, the whole. Uh, Rhapsodies of Monodiel was an amazing uh, experience that I loved as a culminating end point of Final Fantasy XI. Just incredible stuff. Number nine, how old is Prish? Casual gamers might not know this, but Prish has been stuck as a teenager for decades before she gains her time back at the end of her story. Due to her immortality, she has been viewed as anything from a cursed, detestable child to a protector and leader. However, many are still unsure as to her actual age. Despite this, she is still a favorite and beloved source of hilarious moments. Yeah, Prish is amazing, actually. She's one of my favorite characters in the whole game. Uh, number eight, abundant alternate realities. Since the very first Final Fantasy, Square has used time travel and alternate worlds freely as a major plot point. But Final Fantasy XI boasts more realities than any other many times over. The main storyline takes place in a timeline where the goddess Altana changed the outcome of the Crystal War. The player also has access to visit Shadow Rain, an alterable past, and Abyssia, an apocalyptic alternate timeline. There's also a Desusia, a timeline where Promethea came to power. In addition to this, let's recall the many other realms. There's the Vagari Pocket Dimension, Provenance, the Origin of Life, and the Walk of Echoes for Overseeing Time. There's the Astral Realm of the Gods, Dynamis, Tartarus, Promivian, and Esha. And there are the Alteyu and Jima Mother Crystals, as well as the six Elemental Proto-Crystal Realms. Most of these places can be visited by the player, but it gets cumbersome to keep track of. <laughs> Too many zones. Number seven, the circumstances and aftermath of Tavnazia. Um... This one was always interesting to me. You, you see the fall of Tavnazia in the very opening cutscene of the video game, and it was always a strange place that we never knew about or, or, or and always, I always wanted to go to, and then when they released Chains of Promethea and you were able to go to the Tavnazian archipelago, it was always cool to kind of think like, oh, we're going to get to go to that place. And you never actually do, uh, but you do get to go off to a, a hilltop in Mizuru Coast and look off in the distance, and you can see the abandoned and destroyed city of Tavnazia from which the people fled in the opening cutscene off in the distance, so I thought that one was cool. Um... So I knew that one by heart. I didn't have to read that one. Number six, three men almost come out of the closet. There's a minor but hilarious quest available in the Ottergon Whitegate called Three Men in a Closet, where three arguing soldiers in the Serpentine King Square begin to act strangely. A Mithra accidentally spills a love potion on Bashraf, one of the three volunteer soldiers. Immediately, Bashraf falls in love with the first person he sees, fellow soldier Wahound. So, I mean, I don't know. That one probably is, is making a mockery out of... Um, all sorts of things that I probably, whatever, that one's, you know, sure. Number five, the Magus sisters return, the Shikaris, you can read about, you can listen to that one. Um, number four, tell them what you want and it just might happen. It seems that by legitimately reading the forums and responding to Q&A, the creators actually take player suggestions into their patches. Uh, through this, they developed and announced new abilities that were requested or found ways to improve the jobs they've admitted were useless upon release. For example, summoners and ninjas. This article is a little old, keep in mind. It's interesting to see an audience's input actually affecting the gro growing world of an MMO. Yeah, I don't know about that anymore. Um, 
Number three, scrapped ideas you didn't know about. Um, there's a lot of scrapped ideas in Final Fantasy XI, um, such as giving the Gawka the ability to eat two different foods to gain buffs from both, uh, though that later felt that was overpowered. Uh, relic weapons were supposed to break, but developers felt this was too harsh. What the hell? Good God. The game was originally going to have even more eras you could travel to. Shantoto was to sprout wings. They kind of added that with the trust, Shantoto. And the Excalibur was originally a rare item that could be found by fishing on Japanese servers, though no one ever found one. Number two, the Crystal War was caused by a game. Um, a lot of manipulating events that happened to initiate in the Christ there's a whole history there but this you know the fact that count count bifrons appeared before uh commander schultz and uh offered him immortality in exchange for playing an eternal game of tactics using the world as their crest chessboard and people as their pieces so while the two have been manipulating events behind the scenes they've actually been involved with or the cause of most of the major conflicts in the game and number one, the disturbing process of becoming a blue mage. At first glance, it may seem innocuous to become a blue mage, fetching an item to help a fortune teller's bedridden mother. Simple, right? But upon completion of the task, the player is knocked unconscious and undergoes an ominous initiation ritual, which few survive. The player awakens to find themselves modified, their soul ripped out and infused with monster essence. The player is now an empty vessel, one of the immortal lions under the empire of Adragon, and ready to assimilate more fiends. Ugh. Casting blue magic causes the user physical pain, and Magus armor must be acquired to contain the beast within, lest blue mages sooner become corrupted and lose their humanity to become monstrous soul flayers. Even now, no known immortal has ever died of natural causes. So yeah, blue mages are pretty crazy. They're this like chimeric abomination of monster powers. Crazy. So there was a lot of stuff in there that I didn't know about. Hope you enjoyed that little rundown of some Final Fantasy XI uh, lesser known facts. And I know this was kind of a longer episode, but I appreciate you hanging in there. Um, if you like this or if you have any questions or comments, feel free to call in, leave a message anytime you'd like. And it was a, it was a pleasure work being with you today. I really, I really enjoyed reading this Final Fantasy stuff and talking about it with you. I'll post links to both of these articles in the description of the episode. And as always, thank you so much for tuning into the Pickup Line. I'm Justin, and I'll see you next time.